Well, I, I think that there are some things that predispose some people toward having excessive anxiety. In other instances, I think folks can, for psychological reasons, have more of a propensity toward anxiety. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast. I am excited to bring you today's conversation with Dr. Stephen Pierce. Dr. Pierce is nothing short of a genius in my opinion. And in our conversation today, we get to some really big thoughts around anxiety. If you've been following along this entire month, we're focusing on the topic of anxiety, kids, sports and anxiety, and just anxiety in general. Dr. Pierce in our conversation today talks about how to cope gives us some really, um, I, I think, very palatable coping mechanisms around anxiety. He also introduces a way of thought about anxiety as an everyday occurrence for most individuals. And the difference between anxiety from like a human behavioral standpoint and anxiety from a clinical disorder standpoint. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And if you're loving this conversation around anxiety, uh, maybe it's really striking home for you. There are a couple things that I want to encourage you to do. The first thing is um, check out what's happening over at Restoration Church. We've been preaching all month on the topic of anxiety and what the Bible has to say about it. The sermon series is called Everything's Fine. You can look that up at restorationcenterville.org or on our app, Restoration Centerville, found in the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store. The second thing I want to invite you to do is to share this episode with a friend because we know that coming out of isolation and talking about the hard stuff together makes us all grow. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen Pierce. Hey everybody, welcome to the Reclamation Podcast. I'm Tony and I'm excited to bring you today's episode with our featured guest, friend, confidant, counselor for the last Seven years I've known you, Dr. Steve Pierce. Steve, how the heck are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm a little nervous about doing this. Are you nervous? Yeah. Now, you and I have talked countless, countless times. Yeah. So let's just treat it like a conversation. And for everybody who doesn't know you, kind of um, tell, tell them what you do, where you went to school, um, why your voice might be uh, an interesting one on the conversation on anxiety. Okay. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice uh, in the North Dayton, Ohio. Um, where did I go to school? Undergrad. I don't even know if you knew this. Undergrad. I went to Ohio Northern University, which is a Methodist university. Yeah. Polar bears, right? Yeah. Polar bears. Yeah. Um, and from there, I went to a clinical, doctoral clinical psychology program in Northern Illinois University. Um, left there after the master's temporarily to get married and um, while I was gone and out working I found uh, the state of Ohio opened up a new psychology program that was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, the one in Northern Illinois was a PhD program which is um, those are really pretty much research based yeah. research oriented programs and I didn't want to do research I wanted to see people and a school opened in Ohio at Wright State, a doctoral program um, that would teach people how to help people instead of teaching them how to do research. 
And so that's where I finished up my doctorate. And so you're you're a people person, which is important for this conversation. How long have you been in practice? How, how many people have you think you've seen in your lifetime? Let me ask you that. Ballpark. Thousands. Thousands. Yeah. I love I it. I think so, yeah. And how many years have you been in practice? I was licensed in, well... Actually, I was working clinically before I was a psychologist. After my master's degree, I came out and uh, was certified as a substance abuse counselor. So I've been actually since 1978. That's when I started working with folks, period. I've been a licensed psychologist since 1984. So 40 years. 40, Good, solid 40. Yeah, yeah I, it was easy <coughs> for me to do the math since I was, yeah. born, I was born in 80. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I was, yeah, I was seeing people before you were born. Yeah, see, and I think that gives so much credibility to your voice. So I, I appreciate this. And uh, as you and I talked a little bit off air, uh, we're doing this series on anxiety and how it affects people's lives and what it looks like. Um, could could you give us uh, your definition of anxiety? I knew you were going to do that. Well, I, of course I was. <laughs> Now we we've defined it. We've defined it in the series as um, a feeling of un, um, uneasiness, worry about possible events that could happen. How, uh, that's not very clinical. How, or how would you define it in your experience? Even not even clinically. Um, anxiety is very much like fear. Physiologically, anxiety pretty much is fear. The difference between fear and anxiety, in my way of thinking, is that um, fear usually has a very specific stimulus, very specific target. Um, I'm afraid that this lion in the room is going to rip my guts out. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Fear. Anxiety... um, is usually a little vaguer than that, sometimes much vaguer. Some people have feelings that feel physiologically like fear, and they don't even know what it is that's causing it. They just know that they get these unpleasant sensations like um, shakiness, it might be chills, it might be sweats. Uh, um. I mean, for me, it's shortness of breath. Like, if I, if I, I, and I would assume that that's anxiety. Like, I was at Disney World and. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in a crowd of people and I just started getting overwhelmed with the crowd. Mm-hmm. It, it, would you call that anxiety yeah. or fear? Um, were they wielding weapons, pointing them in your direction? No, but they all then had... I call it anxiety. They all had, <laughs> they, they all had those like necklaces that light up. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, anxiety for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because you know it was, that wasn't in a situation where like anybody would feel afraid. Right. So yeah. it's more yeah. Because my wife loved it. Yeah. And, and yeah, she right. was like in in heaven. Like right. it was Fourth of July. There were a hundred thousand people in the uh, out front of Cinderella's castle, and the only thing I can think about <laughs> is I've got to get out of this space. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's a great example of an anxiety response. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. So. Um, how how much do you see anxiety in the people that you talk to on a regular basis? Is this a is I'm reading some statistics out of the National Health Institute that say 31 percent of adults are dealing with anxiety. Do you find that 
to hold true in your meeting with people? Hmm. Anxiety um, is a part of living. Tell, tell me more um, most, about that. Well, most human beings deal with anxiety more or less from time to time, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. It's, um, but yeah, I would, I would guess, I would guess high 90s um, percent of human beings will experience anxiety in their lifetimes. The few who won't might be like an extreme sociopath, somebody who's just completely cold-blooded and has no feelings for anyone whatsoever. But the normal person will definitely have anxiety as part of their normal experience. When you say 31%, I imagine you're talking about like pathological or diagnosable anxiety. Um, and the National Institutes of Mental Health, um, this is a statistic I read recently, um, have estimated 19 or 20 million Americans um, have a diagnosable or have had a diagnosable anxiety disorder. So that's under 10%. But they also, uh, National Institutes of Mental Health says anxiety is the most frequently um, encountered mental illness. And I, I said that with air quotes because um, yeah, I was going to ask. Anxiety about that. is a part of normal experience. Okay. So to call it mental illness, all that means is you can attach a label to it sometimes um, if you need to do so for insurance purposes. So, uh, what I think I hear you saying is that that um, anxiety is healthy. Is that? No, it's normal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's normal. Uh, is it healthy? You know, if there was a lion in the room with us, then it would probably be life-enhancing for us to be scared. Sure. And to have some kind of a physiological reaction to that, you know, to have, like, the blood pump harder out of our hearts and through our our bodies and to our muscles so that we can fight the lion or so that you know I can like hit you over the head so that I can run and the lion can eat you instead of me. <laughs> Th thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there are healthy aspects to a fear reaction. Anxiety is a little more troublesome. Anxiety usually isn't especially helpful. That's what differentiates it I would say from fear is usually just kind of more bothersome and um, annoying and discomforting and yeah so wh where does anxiety come from then um, Nebraska <laughs> damn corn huskers <laughs> um, I don't know I'm not sure how to answer that question I mean you know, Freud would probably answer that it comes from the unconscious, but Freud did cocaine, and you know, he had a lot of weird, weird ideas. Um, on a physiological um, basis, it's characterized by a sympathetic nervous system response. So, things you've associated with, like the term adrenaline rush. Yeah. Yeah, the physiological aspects of anxiety 
come from the sympathetic nervous system um, and are things like um, increased blood flow peripherally you know to the muscles so you can fight the lion um, dilated pupils so that you can see better um, they your body will stop digesting food and start you know preparing for an emergency basically it's an emergency response got it and that's one of the things that's so long-term unhealthy about chronic anxiety that your body's constantly preparing for emergencies which do not occur so then you end up with physiological costs of um, preparing for war all the time and then war never happens there's never anybody to fight Oh. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, perfect sense. In the Army, there was a term that we use, sounds a lot like it, uh, called battle fatigue. And it's from staying in that hyped up sense for way too long. And then what ends up happening is, is they would get that thousand yard stare that basically they're always looking to respond even when there was nothing to respond to. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Have So you've been, we've established you've been in practice now for four decades. Uh Uh-huh. how how has you seen how how have you seen anxiety change in community in the last four decades? Do you think it's it's more prevalent now? Do you think it's more talked about? Do you is it the same? <laughs> Honestly, I got nothing. <laughs> um, so so not I, noticeable I, then. You know, I may not. I it may be that I just sort of walk through life without thinking in those terms of um, what's different culturally. Um, well, I, I think I, I sort of walk through life just trying to understand the human condition. The human condition being something that you know has been such for thousands and thousands of years. I try to understand what it's like to be an, a human being. Yeah. And so I'm I'm more likely to process things on an individual basis and just to try to understand so what are you experiencing and what's that like for you? And I think that the experience of anxiety for people, for individuals is probably very similar now to what it was 40 years ago or for that matter 5000 years ago. Yeah, I would imagine. So I probably haven't um, I just haven't been looking Living my life in such a way that I, I think I have any information relevant to the question that well, you ask. Well, honestly, I think that's part of why you're so good at what you do is because you take people on such an individual basis yeah. that you don't generally think about things culturally. And p- part of why I was asking is because one of the trends that I've seen in this conversation around anxiety is the impact of the Internet and social mm. media to um, to to anxiety as, as people are now like you said, trying to prepare for something that may never happen in terms of uh, uh, comparing themselves to other people in likes and hearts and all the things that happen on social media. So it's it's been really interesting for this discussion around kids mm-hmm. and anxiety because one of the coaches, Coach Ullery, who was on the, the podcast, he said that that He's coaching kids who are always thinking about what they're going to put on their Instagram account or Twitter or, you know, Snapchat streaks or things uh-huh. like that. And, and that's a, a different part of the anxiety equation for him. Well, in, in my day, um, 
the way I can relate to that is when I was in junior high, high school, and college, um, I think that I was still in the process of trying to decide, you know, like, am I okay? Do, do other people like me? Am I a valid person? Stuff like that. And I think that a way that I tried to do that was to get the approval of other people whose opinions I cared about, sure. which was my peers at that time. Um, and so, yeah, I would attend to, you know, what's the right thing to say in this situation and, you know, what's what are, what are popular ways of talking and what words should I use, what phrases should I use, you know, how, how am I going to fit in and be one of the cool guys and, and that kind of stuff. And um, so the way I process what you're talking about is that folks, adolescents, are still trying to do the same thing nowadays, only they're trying to do it instead of through the way they phrase things it's what they say on snapchat or what they say on yeah the videos they're whatever. posting right yeah, yeah yeah exact but but how do i do it right in a way that's likely to be approved by my peers and that's going to make me you know popular, popular. Or acceptable right. or yeah yeah so, so it's the same dilemma just in a different time well, right, and, yeah. and and I, you know, I have to wonder about scale a little bit. Just uh, the number of peers that you have access to, mm-hmm. and could speak into your life at that point in time was probably limited to campus or to you know whatever environment you're in. Mm-hmm. And now in this scenario, the scalability on that is is I mean, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are dialed into your social media, um, but. But at the core level. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and I think you're right. There's a lot more variety of content out there. At the same time, the developmental task of Mm. formulating an identity and coming to accept oneself or not, I think it's still the same fundamental task, and I imagine that there's a limit of how much we can attend to. Sure. So... Yeah, I think that the scale is bigger, but the task may not be bigger. Does that make any sense? No, I, if anything, the task yeah, has probably remained, I mean, the like, same. Yeah, yeah, for 5,000 years, like yeah, you said. Right, like it, right. So w- would you say that the number one task in this kind of, I'm going to say, battle with anxiety, is it is it identity? No, there are lots of things that folks can be anxious about. And that assumes that anxiety is a psychological condition. Oh. Um, well, or I mean, at least that's that's how I'm understanding what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. Because you're saying, what is anxiety about? And the about part seems to me to infer that anxiety is about something. Yeah. Um, so if it's not a... I mean, if it's well, not a psychological are, I, I think condition... There's been, there's been some research that a guy... I think it was his name was Kagan. I'm not sure did that I'm going to misrepresent in a way that still characterizes it. Sure. So if you you imagine that this guy got um, 100 babies and put them in cribs and lined up the cribs. Um, And so he goes, walks behind the first crib by the first baby and claps his hands. Yeah. And um, you see the baby, you know, have an orienting response. They'll look around. They'll look for what the sound is. But, you know, the baby's still cool. They're still okay. And so he does that behind every crib. He finds that one out of ten babies, when he claps his hands, will go like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> 
um, and have like a big startle response. And as he followed those people through life, my understanding of his research was that he found that those babies that had that big startle response were more than average prone to anxiety. It's like maybe they're hardwired with a predisposition toward anxiety. So if you take research like that and try to generalize it, I think perhaps there are some folks who are, for some reason, yeah. which is probably inborn, more likely to develop anxiety disorders than you know, the other 90% of folks are. And so in that way, it's hard for me to think of it as purely a psychological phenomenon. But, you know, I, I had a professor in college who uh, was overgeneralizing a bit, but he said in, in general, um, if you ask a psychologist a question, then you can count on that their answer is going to be, it depends. <laughs> so... Yeah, I so think that's it, what I'm saying here right, is right. it depends. Well, I it, think that there are some things that predispose some people toward having excessive anxiety. In other instances, I think folks can, for psychological reasons, have more of a propensity toward anxiety. Yeah. So, so it may or may not be. It's a somewhat, for some people, psychological right. issue. Right. So what I, but what I do hear you saying, everybody. though, is that with 90% of the people that you see... Uh, have some sort of have wrestled with some sort of anxiety that it's kind of a and this is people I see at church people I see yeah, at yeah, the he, mall yeah 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 everybody yeah, right everybody baseball games right, yeah, right. <laughs> all the best places right um, that it it's both and uh, it's a hu there is a human condition of anxiety and then there's a whole different category for a psychological condition of anxiety is that is that an act am I saying that right I think what I'm saying is is um, that for anxiety to be really big, problematic, uh, troublesome, um, pathological, that um, that sometimes the contributing factors might be psychological in nature, and sometimes it might just be that the person has a um, an unusually strong propensity toward anxiety. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So, um, I, I have long valued your wisdom on how oh, to do, I know, <laughs> I know, I'm buttering you up because I'm, I'm about to ask for something. <laughs> Wait, what, how, how do we deal with it? That, that's, uh, coping mechanisms. What are some of the things now? I, I know that, you know, you've helped me tremendously in my lifetime, wrestle with some of these things that's nice thank you you're very welcome um how when when the average person comes in how do you help them or, or guide them to coping um the absolute truth is if somebody comes into my office with a diagnosable anxiety disorder i virtually always um suggest that they read a particular book that someone read, um, study, and practice a particular book that um, that somebody has written. This particular book is the best book I've seen uh, to help folks with an anxiety reaction. What I like about it is it's um, I think it's accurate. 
think yeah. it's true. And he's sat down systematically to think through, so how would I go about, you know, helping people with an anxiety disorder? Um, what do I need them to know? What are some skills? How can we systematically use these, you know, so that we're building on the foundation that we're laying from chapter to chapter? Somebody's already done that thinking. A whole lot of people have. Sure. But um, I'm lazy. And I don't tend to want to think all of that through piece by piece for myself. So I just um, help them work through a book um, where the person has already systematized that process. And, th and that's this book, right? Yeah. Anxiety, anxiety, Phobias, and Panic. Right. By... Uh... Renee Purifoy. I'm so I'm so glad you said it. You're <laughs> um, yeah. So so that's with somebody with the the diagnosable clinical. Mm -hmm. What about the ninety percent that you run into everywhere else? Like if 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 you're just talking to the normal normal Joe or Jane on the street who's got occasional anxiety, not the the full blown condition. What what are some of the things that you recommend? either in the moment or, or just to kind of uh, tactile stuff. Like, for example, one of the things that you've always told me is uh, to use the word fantasize instead of just I think, you know, I think this will happen. And instead, one of the things that I say is I'm, I'm fantasizing that this okay. will happen as a way to help uh, remind myself that it's, it's a fantasy, it's not actual. That's an example of what's called a cognitive behavioral intervention, um, which means that the way we think about stuff, the way we label stuff matters. Um, and if I can remember that this thing that I'm having fear about isn't a real thing, that exists in the world right now, but rather something that I'm imagining might happen, then it can help me to get less agitated about it if I remember that it's not really happening. It's a fantasy. This isn't the thing that's occurring in the real world. And if I can keep that in front of me, then I'm going to react less to it. Mm. Um, but it's easy to get carried away with one's fears, you know, with one's projections into yeah. the future and to imagine them as real and to think that, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do with this? And um, so, yeah, so anything I can, I can do to help my thinking um, be more realistic and less, um, I'm having trouble with words, less dramatically um, scary is probably going to help me to some degree control my anxiety. So, yeah, stay st another another thing that's an example of that is just staying in the present. You know, oh my gosh, this horrible thing might happen in 6 weeks or you know, it's um there's a whole lot in our culture about politics and you know, approximately 50% of the people are afraid of one set of things that might happen if. <laughs> right. And the other 50% are terrified of the other set of things that might happen if. Um, and culturally, we spend a great deal of time trying to prevent the disasters that might happen if, you know, political things occur. Um, I 
think we would all be better off spending less time worrying about what might happen and spending more time in the present. At this moment, I'm doing okay. Right now, I'm sitting in my office talking to you. Um, I'm comfortable, with the exception of my bladder. Um, <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom. Um, well, you are drinking 32 drink, ounces of coffee. Yes, I am, and enjoying it enormously. Um, but trying to stay in the present moment. You know, usually nothing terrible is happening in the present moment. So that can be another good coping skill. Just stay here right. now. Be in this moment, right this moment. Do you yeah. systematically kind of check through your person when you're doing that to stay in the moment? Like, is it a, a um, just how am I feeling from my head to my toes kind of thing? That's one way to do it. Um, that may or may not go well. Like if a person's in the middle of anxiety, then their bodily... Oh, their body could be changing physically, well, right? Their, yeah, yeah their, their bodily sensations might be really disturbing for them. So to have them focus, for example, on the speed of their heartbeat might not be a good idea. Mm. Um, so whether you want to go internal or external depends on what's... Uh, what your present yeah, and, and instantaneous what psychological Yeah, what your typical is. response is. So for some people, it can be more helpful to ground um, externally rather than internally. Yeah, in this By, room, yeah, it is around, quiet. Yeah, it look is... at the thing on the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? I don't see any lions in the room. It looks like I'm safe. There's nice pictures on the wall. The, the air is a comfortable temperature. I can feel the skin on my buttocks against the seat and the um the i can feel the soles of my feet on the floor you know this is yeah grounding yeah yeah grounding, yeah, yeah exactly that's, that's excellent right in the moment right now and, and that's what projecting into some kind of potentially terrifying future that in reality does not exist at this moment um so let me ask you this uh-huh uh, we both live in dayton and we were um you know, kind of a, just recently had this traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. Tra- yeah. I mean, horrible. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that there are people who are going to walk into crowds differently uh, because of of a fear that has been rooted in, in something they've seen that is true. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do, you have any, do you have any thoughts for that person? To try to soothe their anxiety? Yeah. Well, I, 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 honestly, I don't even know if it's anxiety or fear or because it, I mean, it, I guess if it, it would be, for me, it would be a variation of anxiety okay. because, you know, there is no active shooter in the moment. Right. So, like, if I walk out of my office and I feel afraid walking out of my office because of anticipation that there could be a shooter out there, um, I would say that's anxiety, and I and and I would say that I'm generating it by focusing on, you know, this um, event that doesn't e- exist currently, currently externally yeah. to me. It's possible, and I've just become aware of the intensity of the possibility. But um, but yeah, I um, I need to be able to manage that in order to live well. I need to be able to manage that, even though that it's real that people die tragically and unexpectedly at the hands of 
you know, of um, maniacs with guns, I don't want to let that be the centerpiece of my psychological existence. I don't want to be focusing on that all the time. I don't want to plan my life around that. I don't want to live my life around that possibility. Um, for me, that would constitute psychological disorder mm. if a person, because there were shootings in Dayton, um, oriented their entire existence around that and decided not to leave their house ever. Yeah, you know that's that's psychological disorder. It um, it interferes with day to day functioning. Um, for some people. And I, I don't want to say that anybody who's having a struggle with that today is psychologically ill. That's not what I'm trying to say. You might be having, to some degree, um, some symptoms of what's called an acute stress disorder. It, um, an acute stress disorder is a short version of the better-known phenomenon called post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. It's post-traumatic when it occurs, when you're still having symptoms a certain distance in time away from the event. It's an acute stress disorder when you're really close in time to the event. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, and folks do react to things, and certainly anybody who was intensely exposed to the shootings that just occurred last weekend... Um, may very well be having psychological effects of that. Um, those folks are not mentally ill. They're reacting to what happened. Um, generally speaking, what you want to do in a case like that is find somebody knowledgeable and talk about what you're experiencing. Um, I, think of, I think of acute stress situations like that as being something like a splinter. If you have a splinter, what you want to do with the splinter is, if you have to, get a set of tweezers and dig around in there and, and pull the splinter out, because if you don't pull it out, it's going to get infected. Oh, that's, yeah, that's so good. So, um, so and, and it'll talk hurt. about, it'll yeah. hurt. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you wait long enough, you could end up with massive scars or a serious infection that goes to your bloodstream. Right. You know, really bad things can happen. So you don't want to leave it in, you don't want to push it in farther, you want to get it out. So the way to get it out with a psychological event is to talk about it with others who are knowledgeable, who can help you process um, the experience. Um, that's why crisis counselors, you know, get busy after a, after a time like this, just to help people process. Yeah, appropriately these so. These things, yeah. Yeah, appropriately so. The splinter so. doesn't turn into a, a, a massive infection. Massive infection. And you end up having to cut the whole hand off. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And and then then that will really impact your day to day life. Yeah, I, I, that weaves together very nicely. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, I know that you are a tremendous man of faith and that you've, um, we've, we've talked about it numerous times. How do you look at anxiety through the lens of faith? Where does, how does that intersect together? Mm, really significantly. Um, Ultimately, when anxiety is being psychologically driven, hmm. faith has the potential to be a complete answer 
to the anxiety. Um, if I believed in my heart um, completely that God is always in control, that God is always good, and that all things happen um, as a result of his gracious plan. If I really believe that through and through, I don't imagine I would ever have anxiety. Wow. Tell, tell, me, tell me more about that. Fill well, that in because for me. It's, for me, it's just sort of a, that's just sort of a logical statement. If everything's happening exactly the way God wants it, every minute of the day, all the time, everywhere, and if God is completely good, and if God is completely in charge, Nothing's wrong. Hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's to be scared about? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that I don't believe that throughout the depths of my spirit all the time. And when I don't, then it's easy for me to imagine that, um, oh my gosh, this is wrong, or, you know, oh... I might have this illness and I can die and that would be terrible and or um, this person might be mad at me and they might say terrible things about me and other thing other people might think badly of me and that would be horrible or um, to the, it, I guess what I'm saying is it requires me to believing me to be believing something other than. God's in complete control and everything's going in accordance with his will in order to be anxious. If I believed that all the time, I wouldn't be anxious. Right. So then do you um, do you use your uh, faith then as a coping mechanism with, in your own life? Let me, I mean, there's you know, uh, there are times when I'm able to successfully do that. Um, now, you chose your words very carefully. Well, yeah, the truth is I'm human and... Um, and my faith is less than perfect. That's that's my reality. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I know God is real. S sometimes, and sometimes more, sometimes less, but sometimes I struggle with, but is God really for me mm. or not? Am I okay? Am I enough? Am I... <clears throat> Am I on God's good side? You know, I struggle with. Um, well, that's that's my own psychological struggle. That's a manifestation of my own personal insecurities, um, and it impacts um, my ability to completely believe my theology. You know, even if I think God is love, because John said so. God right. is good all the time. He's always good. He always loves. He always loves me. He's always concerned what happens for me. Even if I believe that in my head, um, I struggle with it psychologically. Um, yeah, kind of accepting it in that, your spirit. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and um, during those gaps, I am quite susceptible to anxiety. Am I making sense? Oh, it's 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 
beautiful actually it's beautifully yeah. said i think i think it makes a lot of sense that that um if you happen to be a person of faith and you can lean into your faith it it should that, yeah it should counteract ideally ideally one might be able to use that to um minimally soothe and potentially eradicate any anxiety that you're experiencing but in my own personal experience my ability to to do that um is quite fallible there have been times when i've been able to to harness enough faith that it really impacted my instant anxiety there are other times that i find that i'm that i'm not able well i to mean garner enough right to successfully impact my current fear. Well, so, perfect example. The Disney World example. Yeah. I, I wasn't thinking about God then. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't yeah. thinking about my faith. I uh, Theologically, I know all those statements that you made are true. Yeah, yeah. But yet, in that moment, all I could think about is, whew, it's getting hard to breathe in here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> what What's going to happen with all these people? Da, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Why is it right. so hot underneath this stupid poncho? Right? Like, yes. you know, all of the feelings there. Right. So I think faith is a wonderful tool, the best, ideally the best tool to use to counter anxiety. But I also think that my own growth in faith is a gradual process. And um, I guess earlier in my life I was a pretty black or white thinker. Yeah. And I always used to imagine, well, you should just be able to do, you know, this and do it perfectly. And um, that has not been my experience of the human condition. I don't find that other people are able to do whatever, you know, 100% and perfectly. And I know I can't. So even though ideally faith would be the perfect counter to fear, to anxiety, um, Pragmatically, I think we each need to go through our own growth process to, to get better and better and better at, um, at having genuinely that kind of deep faith. Yeah, For we, me, it's been a gradual process. Well, I mean, certainly Wesley would say that that's the process of sanctification. Okay, yeah. That, uh, that gradual increase okay. of becoming more like Christ. Yeah. And, and in that, have this, uh, you know, from Christ's example, perfect faith. Yes, exactly. Um, but, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm with you. I feel so far so far away from that most yeah. days yeah. that that yeah. Um, I can see where, where it just gets real squishy. Yeah, it gets real squishy. But the matter isn't that it's not God's inadequacy. It's my lack of faith. Oh, yeah. ye of little faith. You know, if you had but faith, the faith of a mustard, the size of a mustard seed, or whatever, right? You move mountains. Yeah, that's a mustard seed looks way big to me some days. <laughs> Amen. That'll that'll preach right there. <laughs> that'll preach right there. Yeah. So, um, if if you were to go back and, and look at your own life uh-huh. and anxiety, uh-huh. um. What what advice would you give young Steve in the dorm room trying to please his peers or to find the right words? Um, 
what, what would you go back and tell your uh, younger version of yourself about anxiety? Um, well, it wouldn't be about anxiety. It would, it would be about reality. It would be about you are loved. God loves you. Yeah. This, this is the reality. God loves. You are loved. He created you just the way he created you. It's okay to be just as you are. You don't have to look for the right cover, the right mask, the right disguise Yeah. to be accepted or to be loved. It's okay for you to be just the way you are right now. Now, on the other hand, I would humanly say, but you got a whole lot of work to do, so don't stop that process either. (laughs) (laughs) Just because God loves you doesn't mean that you're all that. (laughs) It means it's okay to feel safe in the world. It's okay to be vulnerable enough to self-examine. It's okay to not be perfect, to know that you're not perfect, and to begin to embrace your imperfection and try to do a little better. Um, But you don't need to completely build a false front in the image of those peers that you most admire and respect. The, um, your peers aren't God. God is God. Yeah, that's that's probably really timely for a lot of our listeners, I yeah. think. Yeah. Your peers aren't God. God is God. Yeah. yeah that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, fi- final words on anxiety for anyone who's listening and might be wrestling with how this plays out in their life or the life of someone they love? Okay, one thing I want to say about anxiety is um, we haven't talked a great deal about um, clinical anxiety, about levels of anxiety that are so severe that they are causing life problems. Yeah. For that, um, man, I just want to encourage anybody that's listening, if you're having um, anxiety that really... interferes with your ability to live life happily and well um, contact somebody about it get get help with it you don't have to be able to figure it out all by yourself and in fact it's going to be really hard to figure it out all by yourself Yeah. Um, there are some people that have some tools and have some skills um, contact them, use them let them be of assistance to you, don't try to, don't try to figure it all out yourself that's too hard um There are four components to successful anxiety treatment. Um, And one is education. One is learning about anxiety. Um, The book that we mentioned earlier is a good source of information about anxiety. Yeah. Two is something called relaxation. And that doesn't mean sitting down on the couch in front of the TV and drinking a beer. Um, (laughs) The relaxation in this sense... um, is a very specifically defined term. And what it means is um, the regular 
performance of any specific activity which, when practiced at a certain level, can reliably result in invocation of parasympathetic nervous system functioning. That is to say, yeah, I was just saying, relaxation is one of any number of things like self-hypnosis, progressive muscle relaxation. Got it. Um, Intentional mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah. Um, guided imagery, any of those things, which if you practice them enough, um, then you can train yourself how to get yourself from an agitated state like from um, an adrenaline reaction into a more relaxed state. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the second leg of the, of the four-legged stool of anxiety treatment is um, learning a relaxative method and practicing it to the point where you can actually use it functionally to bring yourself yeah. down yeah, okay. when you're struggling. With Mate, that makes perfect sense. Okay. The third leg of the stool is something called be- behavior... Um, cognitive behavioral technologies or cognitive restructuring or basically what all that stuff means is um, developing some skills in the analysis of your own thought processes so that when your thinking is illogical and harmfully illogical um, so that for example if you're scaring yourself with worries about the future you can learn some technology for analyzing your own thoughts and modifying your thoughts mm. on purpose so that eventually you're believing different things and then you're not so scared. Got it. That's most of the hard work of anxiety treatment is the cognitive restructuring part, learning how to rethink things. And um, probably each of us is making a lot of thinking errors that we don't um, by ourselves know that we're making. So that's one of the places where contacting a knowledgeable person, a psychotherapist or whatever, can be really helpful in folks getting somewhere with their anxiety. And, and they're going to have a lot of trouble doing that all by themselves. Yeah, it's absolutely. hard to see your own blind spots. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. And the fourth, um, the fourth leg of that stool is medication. And there are helpful medications for anxiety. Um, anxiety is one of the areas where I would advise that people... Don't just lean on medicine. Even if the medicine results in symptom removal, um, with anxiety, um, some of the anxiety reduction medicines can, over time, um, be something that you develop a dependency on. Mm. So doing psychotherapy and medicine for anxiety is, in my opinion, better than just doing medicine. But medicine can be something that's helpful in the short term to help sort of make a dent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So don't try to do it alone is my best advice. That's And I think that's so important for all of us. And, yeah. And, and that goes for our faith walk as well. Like, yeah. I mean, we're not going to yeah. grow in our faith. Same thing. Can't yeah. see your own blind spots. Can't see your own blind spots. Right. Yeah, that's... I've appreciated some of the ways you've tried to put dents in my... Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. In, thank in, you. In my uh, theological... Um, in the theological thoughts that get me in trouble. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I know people are going to ask if they're in the Dayton area, are you taking patients? Because they, I mean, they're probably just going to fall in love with you over this interview. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's likely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I am. Um, You're in a different I'm season kinda, of your practice. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm, you know, I'm lazy. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I work part-time. Um, but, yeah, you know, um, I guess this is my answer to that. If something has is striking somebody and they're sort of feeling led to contact me you know if, if the holy spirit's leading you to contact me contact me i really want sure yeah yeah i really want that uh, what's i'm a, not on the other hand actively out searching for clients. clients right yeah right. right yeah um and uh what's the best way for people to contact you um website call no, the office no like I said, I'm lazy. I don't even have a personal website. <laughs> um, my partner in a group practice that I that I co-own has done the hard work of creating a website for that practice. But my own, the place where I see my own clients, yeah, I don't even have a web presence. Um, the phone number of my practice is 937-454-1541. Um, when you hear my voice come on um, the answering tape, then just press 115. That's my personal mailbox. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Well, Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. For the time today and for all that you, uh, all the wisdom you dropped here, I think. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you are so, uh, so kind. Oh, thank to, you. <laughs> To say things like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly my pleasure. It's yeah. certainly my pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time today to listen to our conversation with Dr. Stephen Pierce. We hope that you found it life-giving. I don't know about you, but I particularly loved the part that he talked about his faith and his theology and his humanness. I found that to be just an enriching part of the conversation. I'd love to hear from you. What did you love about this conversation with Dr. Pierce? What did you find interesting? You can always hit us up at twmilt.com or on Instagram, twmilt, Facebook, twmilt. We would love to hear more from you about how God or Dr. Pierce spoke to you in this conversation. As always, the highest compliment that you can give us is to share this episode with a friend, maybe somebody who's never listened before. We would love to continue to share more about how to balance faith and life. Thank you so much, and we'll see you guys real soon.